0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV
1: podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
2: So we're now uh, to our final session called Growing UC, Past Successes and Future Challenges. And it's my pleasure to introduce Lawrence Pitts, Professor Emeritus of Neurosurgery at UC San Francisco, who was... uh, the Academic Senate Chair in 2003 and 2004, also the Provost of the University from 2009 to 2012. Larry. And I also would like to thank uh, Robert and Shane for all the work and the Senate faculty, Senate staff who have done such a great job for this meeting So, and, and to the audience who has been seriously engaged so far. I hope it will continue for the next... Uh, two hours. Um, So for this topic, uh, UC's past successes and uh, future challenges, we're going to start with a keynote address by two speakers, uh, Dr. Zaneeth Hundle and uh, uh, Ma Vang. Um, Professor Hundle is currently an assistant professor of uh, anthropology, uh, assistant professor of anthropology and associated faculty with the clinical race and ethnic studies at uh, UC Merced, but is in the process of transitioning to a new faculty position at UC Irvine. She is actually currently on sabbatical at UC Berkeley, so she's sort of a, a major uh, migrant among UC campuses. I pointed out to her, and I see that Robert has moved to Davis from Irvine, she's moved that the greatest source of new faculty for UC campuses is other UC campuses, so that's uh, we have good examples here. Uh, she's being joined uh, in her presentation by one of her uh, former, to be former colleagues, uh, Ma Vang, who is um, also with the Critical Race and Ethnic Studies Program at Merced. Their, the topic of their presentation, which they will do jointly here sort of a tag team, uh, the 21st Century Neoliberal Research University, Reflections on Opportunity, Risk, and Solidarity at the New UC. So... Professors uh, Vang and Hundle.
1: Okay, thank you so much for hanging in with us for the very last session of the day. We really appreciate it. Um, this is actually going to be a nice, I think, uh, continuity from the last panel and the sort of set of issues that were opened up and hopefully we can build on the conversation that we've been having since yesterday with the discussion of the master plan but continuing with the themes that we've had today. So we are going to do something a little bit different. We co-wrote a paper and we are going to divide it up so there will be some transitions in between the lecture as we speak. So just to begin, I want to first thank you so much for the opportunity to present at the 150th Anniversary Symposium of the University of California system. We would especially like to thank the members of the UC Academic Senate in attendance and also other faculty and our friends and colleagues who couldn't be here today. Uh, We'd also like to thank the UC Office of the President and the staff who helped organize this event. We thank Professor Robert May for his invitation to speak at this wonderful forum, Professor Larry Pitts for moderating and organizing our panel, and our fellow panelists. Finally, we would especially like to thank Professor Sean Malloy at UC Merced for encouraging our work. So we're honored to present today and think about the UC multiversity to invoke Clark Kerr, the 12th president of the UC system. We think the multiversity from the perspective from a smaller perspective, from our fledgling UC, UC Merced, or UCM. Our talk today is based on a paper that we co-wrote together, which is now under review for publication. It's the culmination of a number of intellectual exchanges and conversations we've been having among ourselves, other colleagues, and some of our students. These conversations began when we were newly hired, tenure-track, junior faculty, at UCM in 2014 and 2015, and we anticipate that they will continue. We want to situate our analysis from our perspectives as junior minority and women faculty at UCM that are reflecting on the demographic shifts in the U.S., in California, and in the UC system, specifically the ways in which liberal ideologies and practices of inclusion increasingly run up against overt non-liberal strategies of exclusion that we are observing in the context of the current political climate in the US. Therefore, in our talk, we center ethical and critical perspectives that seek to position the UC in our current local, national, and global crossroads. Our mode of celebrating the 150th anniversary of the multiversity is to think about its connection to the upholding of public values, larger civic issues and social problems, and its envisioning of a democratic polity and global society. So here we invoke democracy as an aspirational project, not as something that is already given or an assumed idea. And I think that's a really important point to make. Importantly, we're not speaking from the perspective of an administrative sort of take, or a more managerial perspective, or even a technocratic perspective. But as professors and teachers who are deeply invested in the mission of the UC, but who must also provide our students with an intellectual toolkit to understand their society and their circumstances. Thus, our talk is positioned in relation to the everyday struggles of navigating the university and the UC as junior scholars and researchers, teachers, and mentors for minority and working class students. So I just want to draw your attention very quickly to some of the slides that we have up on either side of the room. And I'm going to read this really quickly. We, UPRISE, Uplifting People Power to Resolve Issues of Space and Equity at UC Merced, wish to uplift the concerned and marginalized voices of undergraduate and graduate students. We envision a campus community that affirms our intersectional identities, our humanity, our contributions to society, our resilience, and our right to dignity and respect. As such, we, the students housed in this 21st century neoliberal university who come from a long line of change makers around the world, believe that that another reality is possible. We unapologetically center the lives of marginalized and disenfranchised communities through a praxis of decolonial love, solidarity, and transnational resistances. We intentionally build political consciousness and confront and intervene against structural and institutional violence and everyday oppressions to create new possibilities for academic emancipation and collective liberation. We demand that resources be intentional, educational, and empowering. We demand cultural resource centers. We demand better recruitment and retention. We demand ethnic studies and an increased number of diverse faculty that more closely reflect our student population. We demand a demilitarized campus. We demand New said halt enrollment until basic needs are met. We demand dignity and respect. Here at the 2020 groundbreaking, we want to center conversations and visions on students, not economic interests, not physical capital, not projected growth, not exploitation, but student experiences in the institution. So we start with these uprise demands because it articulates our students' vision of UC Merced, the 10th and newest campus in the UC system located in the San Joaquin Valley of California. This university has two branding slogans, the first new American research university of the 21st century and building the future in the heart of California. California. The uprise statement was delivered by a group of minority, working class, and queer undergraduate students to administrative leadership during the 2020 Project Groundbreaking Ceremony, which celebrated the campus's latest building expansion. We are interested in the contradictions that were eliminated by this event, the highly visible spectacle of the groundbreaking of the university expansion with its uprooting and unbearing of the surrounding rangeland, and its contrast to the largely buried claims of marginalized participants in the university, undergraduate students. Indeed, as I discuss further, this is directly related to the larger structural paradox of the UC, decreasing state investment and the increasing enrollment of majority-minority students. We suggest that UCM offers an ideal case to ethnographically understand what is often overgeneralized and essentialized as the neoliberal university in American academe. So I'll come back to what I mean by neoliberalism in a moment. We argue that UCM is somewhat of an exceptional institution in the UC because it is a neoliberal university from its inception, origins, and development. We are interested in how UCM is an active agent of neoliberal processes and not just acted upon by neoliberal processes. Moreover, we focus on how the university secures its reproduction via three primary logics. One, the aspirational projects of the UC master plan and the California idea. Two, what we describe as neoliberal developmentalism. And three, what we call neoliberal diversity projects. Essential to our argument is our methodology, which makes use of our training in anthropology and ethnic studies, We also critically assess ideas foundational to the UC system, such as access, diversity, equity, and public, and suggest that they are arresting concepts. In doing so, we attend to the work of concepts and what colonial historian Ann Stoller calls the project of concept work. For instance, we are interested in terms like diversity and access, the work that they do, their ontologies or their conditionality of being, what they might preclude or occlude, and what ideas and practices they make mobile and immobile in the UC. We ultimately advance a critique of the entwined relationship between neoliberalism and diversity to read the neoliberal university through a lens of both race and knowledge formation. In doing so, we ask critical questions about the university as a late liberal capitalist formation itself, as well as the burden of representing the university's ethical commitments to society, So in other words, we're asking broader philosophical questions like what is the university and what is it for? Who does it serve? How does it do the work that it does? And as a side note, here we have much more to say about our, our approach to diversity, but due to time constraints, for us, we're just approaching this as a critical concept or through a critical approach We point out that diversity can vaguely mean inclusion in majoritarian liberal multicultural society, but it also often entails exclusions and can avoid actually dealing with minority difference. And so that's a sort of continuity with uh, the previous panel. By reframing UCM as the 21st century neoliberal research university, rather than just the 21st century research university, we make legible the neoliberal conditionality and reproduction of the institution. We argue that the university affords opportunities to students, staff, and faculty, but they also entail and are constituted by risk for the very vulnerable populations that the UC serves. UCM's origins as a form of the neoliberal university means that a diverse student body, mainly first-generation, poor, or working-class, and racialized, have a necessarily ambivalent relationship to the institution. By highlighting risk in what we call the opportunity-risk dyad at UCM, we center the racial crisis of university development under late capitalism, providing more evidence for the multiversity as an intellectual, ethical, and material matter of inquiry. Our reference to racial crisis resonates with Paula Chakravarti and Denise Ferreira de Silva's point to quote: "Situate the racial moment of the financial crisis in the last three decades of neoliberal backlash." waged across the post-colonial global south, unquote. Centering racial crisis in our analysis points to race not simply as a tokenized phenotypical marker of difference, but as an ideological framework, material expression, and lived embodiment of social inequality. By centering the experience of risk among working students, staff, and faculty of color, we observe that these groups possess complex intersectional identities, histories, and traditions of thought that are often illegible, deracinated, or assimilated into liberal multicultural citizenship and diversity initiatives. Thus, the opportunity risk dyad is symptomatic of an institution like UCM where administrators and external assessors view the numeric diversity of the campus, what we might call structural diversity, as a successful marker of access, equity, and equality in the UC. So what we are arguing is that structural diversity is not enough, right? So before shifting back to Merced, what do we mean by neoliberalism and neoliberal university? We draw on a large corpus of scholarly thinking on what has been described as a post-1970s world capitalist order that is more aggressive and volatile than conventional liberal capitalism. This form of capitalist accumulation is entwined with both governance and ideology to promote what cultural critic Henry Giroux has described as an economic Darwinism, which encourages, on many scales, unchecked privatization, commodification, free trade, and market deregulation. This economic Darwinism privileges personal responsibility over larger social forces, reinforces the gap between the rich and poor by redistributing wealth to the most powerful and wealthy individuals and groups, and fosters a mode of public pedagogy that privileges the entrepreneurial subject while encouraging a value system that promotes self-interest and disdain for social responsibility, public values, and the public good. Other consequences, of course, that we know are the dismantling of the welfare state and the idea of a social contract, uh, the enrichment of corporations and the defense industry. Um, It facilitates the retreat of state support in what is increasingly being described as zones of social abandonment, Social problems are often increasingly criminalized. It eliminates public spheres where people learn to translate private problems into social ones, and it undermines solidarity and conceptions of democracy. Of course, Giroux and others point to the degradation of liberal democratic values and the social contract, promoting a kind of nostalgia for them, whereas post colonial and decolonial scholars like ourselves suggests that the foundation of liberal societies and the liberal humanist university were based upon imperial and settler colonial projects, forms of capitalist appropriation, and racial and intellectual exclusions. And we can extend this analysis to the UC like Dylan did in the previous panel. So the crucial point is that neoliberalism is not only an economic process that we experience as austerity, but an exalted philosophy, ideology, and governmentality that shapes us as people and affects all aspects of life in the U.S. and increasingly higher education in the academy. We are all aware of these trends in our universities. We see the increasing pace of corporatization and militarization, the squelching of academic freedom, um, which affects different groups of scholars differently, an ever-increasing contingent of part-time faculty, the loss of faculty rights and power, The rise of a bloated managerial class and the view that students are consumers and faculty are providers of a saleable commodity, such as a credential or a set of workplace skills. What is also striking for us as junior faculty is seeing the slow death of the university as a center of critique, vital source of civic and political education, and a crucial public good. Neoliberalism thus thrives on anti-intellectualism that erases critical thought historical analysis, and understanding of broader structural or, or systemic relations. So we've observed academic capitalism or the corporatization of the university at UCM in the form of always already existing logics, technologies, and cultures and management, which often work to secure the crisis of neoliberalism, as well as individualization, financialization, competition, entrepreneurship, and notions of self-help and self-care, So my students and I have sometimes playfully joked that we are in the DIY or the do-it-yourself university. So they've kind of taken that up as as an analysis. Thus, we emphasize the societal condition of neoliberalism as central to the development, governance, management, and reproduction of complex university processes. The terms of neoliberal conditionality become increasingly transparent, visible, and naturalized through the explicit idea that faculty, staff, and working students of color must accept suboptimal conditions, which is an actual technocratic term used on our campus, uh, in an era of dwindling tenure track, academic job market possibilities, and you see educational opportunities for minority students. The widespread circulation of increasingly vacuous terms, such as entrepreneurship, innovation, and inventiveness, in emails, meetings, talks, and public events, exemplify the everyday iterations of neoliberal rationality and the alliance between university development, and the broader for-market imperatives of broader society. The ensuing risks for students, staff, and faculty of color, especially in the context of the Trump presidency, which increasingly is promoting authoritarianism over white nationalism and anti-intellectualism, can range from bodily, emotional, and mental health risks, financial risks of indebtedness, the risk of being commodified, which we'll talk about, and intellectual and epistemological risks. So we're just going to do a quick switch right now. Sorry. All
3: right. I'm not as tall as a Nath. but good afternoon. So um, we're going to provide a little bit of context, historical context, for UC said. I know in the, over the last days or so I've had some conversations with some of you, and you were a part of those conversations to begin, UC Merced. So, This may not be completely new to you, but bear with us because um, we're going to sort of uh, talk about and deepen our our understanding of uh, the neoliberal logics that are at work um, that we see. Okay, so although it was scheduled to open in 1998, our campus eventually opened in 2005 after the UC Board of Regents approved the construction of a UC in 1989. The regions targeted the San Joaquin Valley, the central agricultural region of California for its 10th campus because it makes up approximately 10% of the state's population and has the second highest demographic growth rate in the state. It, also, it is also an underserved area for higher education for primarily low income, working class students of color. Despite the complexities involved in the long process of establishing and developing the first three phases of the university between 1989 and 2005, as well as declining state revenues and statewide budget cuts from 1990s onwards and the great recession of 2007 through 2009, the state of California had invested $5 million in the construction of the new UC, and the regents have continued to support the development of the campus. In short, it has been no easy task to invest in the building of a new research university in the context of global and national economic restructuring, a a national financial crisis, and the effects of the expanding global war on terror and the prison-military-industrial complex, both at home and abroad. And in the Central Valley in particular, it's the investment in building of prisons, right? Yet, the UC has maintained its commitment to serving students at UCM, even going so far as to include a separate line item for a new university in the state budget. Thus, we deepen our claim that UC Merced is a neoliberal university by contending that the particular convergence of political economic crisis and opportunity— to build a new UC has made UC Merced ground zero of the, the ground zero of the material and symbolic form of the future of the research university in a neoliberal era. We stress that UC Merced represents UC Merced represents neoliberal futures for other UCs. On the one hand, UC Merced is an institution built on aspirational claims of the California idea, the master plan, including the UC system's legacies of research and teaching for the public good. Um, On the other hand, there is no institutional memory of a before the normalization of neoliberal processes and the making of a research university. UCM's paradox lies in its status as a new institution that is rooted in the tradition of the UC system. There is no system-wide precedent for UC as an assemblage of late capitalist development without without an institutional history. In fact, founding faculty have had to operate within the paradoxical paradigm of replicating something new. This model rests on the basis of ongoing budget cuts, as well as the normalization of public-private partnerships for development, I think as as George mentioned yesterday, especially in our 2020 project expansion, right, which is based on this sort of um, private-public model. The expansion of contingent labor, cost-effective centralized school, department, and staff services to structure and plan campus development, as well as minimal budget allocations to student resources and student support services in order to account for budget deficits. Most of the scholarship we have reviewed on uh, our campus, written by administrators and other actors involved in the development of the university, tends to avoid an analysis of neoliberalism in favor of a discussion of budget cuts or budget deficits and shortfalls to explain the challenges of building a new UC, thereby normalizing and naturalizing these processes. We argue that it is important to shift from corporate technocratic managerial perspectives of the university to a critical engagement with the potential political economic conditions of university development and expansion as well as, is, as well as its associated ideas of access, equity, diversity and the public good in order to be uh, ethical participants in the U.C. in the 21st century. Therefore, we urge moving past celebratory, techno-futuristic narratives at UCM, which are tied to the institutional legitimization of the campus um, of the campus's neoliberal conditionality. We suggest that this conditionality rests on three core logics that need to be carefully studied and assessed. So first, the, lo- the first logic um, is that there are the aspirational visions of the California IDEA and California Master Plan, documents and policies constructed in the context of the 1960s California which tout equal, fair, and meaningful access to higher education for all qualifying Californian high school graduates. And we can discuss this you know, in relation to last night's p- panel. The second core logic of UCM is neoliberal developmentalism. This logic suggests that the university will eventually be able to fund itself and it, and its expansion through its capital investment and various strategies of extraction and accumulation of capital and financialization of capital, as well as through the potential profitable opportunities that the university is able to extract from the region and we can also discuss further the impact of the university on Merced. This logic is often deployed in terms of the potential productivity, success, and upward mobility of the university's student population and the local communities of the Central Valley. Mobility and access to the California dream is based on expected opportunities for education, research, and employment in an impoverished region of California. Often, we have found that discourses about the institutions construct UCM as a benevolent university in the region, tasked with the burden of uplifting the racialized poor, but also the opportunity to tap into the valley's ostensibly unmined um, human and natural resources. For example, there's this prevailing narrative about a new university that was built on the farmland to provide a quote-unquote beacon of hope for the region, often rendering students and communities in the Central Valley as tragic entities who will become productive and meaningful individuals through their access to the university. Indeed, the imaginary of the valley, California's agricultural beltway that produces 25% of the nation's food as the periphery of the coastal California metropole and the raw unskilled labor power of its local inhabitants is Powerful and effective as a legitimizing rationale for the university. And as an anecdote, one of my colleagues uh, at Berkeley, uh, as a slip of the tongue, referred to the Central Valley as the Midwest. But you can see that it's a reflection of this narrative of the Central Valley, right? And the imaginary of the Central Valley. Third is the, neoliberal, the, is the neoliberalization of diversity at UCM, which... Um, Persists right in the university's aims to produce, name, and manage diversity, both celebrating the presence of bodies of color and inadequately addressing the politics of racialized, gendered, minoritized difference in the university or the structural concerns, lived realities, and educational needs of a complex student population. UCM produces neoliberal diversity formations epistemologically through liberal diversity speak, statistical and demographic data, and tokenized narratives about the region, its people, and the vulnerable student population. Knowledge about students, which are based on discourses that celebrate the presence of diversity as a form of equity and access, can also be paternalistic, often rendering students as homogeneous, vulnerable victims, with less discussion of the agency of students and their communities to shape the vision of the university itself. However, we also stress that the neoliberal university is not a complete or totalizing project. It is a complex assemblage of ideologies, discourses, and material processes and practices. Neoliberal governance is often ad hoc and improvisational. Actors and agents create and implement policies as they respond to crisis. We are tying our shoes as we're running captures many aspects of claim making, program building, policy making, and implementation on our campus. We are especially interested in how these processes create minority difference and student citizen subjects, as well as the forms of solidarity and resistance that the neoliberal university might compel. Under these conditions, student, staff, and faculty of color similarly develop decolonizing anti-racist and anti-capitalist practices that operate along differing political alignments. And thus, we are also tying our shoes while we are running. Um, Indeed, the ever-shifting and contested nature of the neoliberal university was exemplified by the uprise statements um, and demands that student protests at the 2020 Project um, groundbreaking.
1: Back and adjusting the mic. (laughs) Okay, so how do faculty and students mobilize creative strategies to shape UCM under these conditions? In thinking about our own experiences alongside our students, we suggest that UCM is also always at risk of actually empowering us and the communities and students in the region to produce meaningful and autonomous forms of knowledge in the university. This constant tension around opportunity and the distribution, experience, and character of risk expressed in forms of resistance and solidarity-making allows students, staff, and faculty of color to make political claims about the hope and meaning of higher education alongside university expansion. So we've already talked about the kinds of logics that secure the reproduction of UCM as a neoliberal university. In our larger project, we are also interested in how the university fosters solidarity among students, faculty, and staff to secure its reproduction as well as manage its crisis, what we describe as neoliberal solidarity projects. So these are the projects that are being created by the university processes in a kind of more top-down way. We also highlight the relational politics, or what we call non-aligned solidarities information that persist among student staff and faculty of color. So these would be the bottom-up practices as we are responding to these, these processes that are making solidarity from above. We theorize alongside and with students' critical responses to their realities as students who face more limited resources than their counterparts at other UC campuses. To be clear, we are not using their stories and perspectives as if it is empirical evidence from fieldwork research. The examples and analyses we offer are from undergraduate and graduate students we have working relationships with and that we're advising. And if they had had the opportunity to come and join us today, they would definitely have been able to present their own stories and their own ideas. So we highlight our non-aligned solidarities information, which we define as coalitional convergences and divergences that are messy and uneven forms of activism among students, staff, and faculty of color. These occur around diversity initiatives, campus climate issues, and ongoing struggles for student centers and other resources in the university. We observe that the coalitions may form to address specific issues, maybe student or faculty driven, and emerge alongside a politics of identity or an identity based on politics, so that's where we find a lot of friction. The strategies range from playing along with to outright refusing building short-term or long-term alliances with university initiatives. These uneasy and contradictory mobilizations are especially precarious and risky in the academy's hierarchical governance structure and in what has been described as the academic-industrial complex where students and faculty may leave to pursue other opportunities. For faculty of color, this may be a consequence of the institution's publish-parish philosophy that does not relieve them of service burdens. So before we discuss these non-aligned solidarity formations further, let's take a look at the kinds of solidarity that the neoliberal university fosters among us, the, solid, the solidarities with which we are a little bit more suspicious our term, Neoliberal Solidarity Projects, describes how UCM cultivates the identity and self of the first generation of color student within the Opportunity Risk Dyad. We observe that the university often co-ops, appropriates, and commodifies key notions of minority difference. The terms diversity, first generation, and the local communities of the Central Valley and Merced. These neoliberal solidarity projects often create tensions in student activist strategies and among ourselves. As an example, one of our former undergraduate students responded to our theorization of UCM as a neoliberal university by relating her experiences of activism around undocumented or DACA student issues. And we have a large uh, proportion of DACA students at UC Merced in particular, so this is really important. She clearly understands the ways in which undocumented students are enmeshed within and interpreted by both neoliberal diversity and neoliberal solidarity projects, and the ways in which complexities in student agency and subjectivity emerge in the context of resisting the university and organizing. She writes UCM's data collection on undocumented students as international and unclassified students, this is the legal category that they are placed under, helps the university identify and recognize the undocumented population and their needs. This data collection also serves as a technology that provides evidence for the majority minority status of UCM and its claims to diversity due to the number of racialized, minoritized, and undocumented students enrolled, unquote. We don't discount the importance of collecting data on undocumented students to provide services to them at the UC and at Merced, but we do critically and ethically assess the ways that data collection has been used to advance the university's diversity initiatives, which can further dehumanize students and undermine substantive forms of inclusivity. Our student explained that UCM employs data on undocumented students as evidence of diversity, to construct itself as a progressive institution. This, in turn, serves as a disciplining force that compels undocumented students to conform as model minorities, who should then be able to to become citizens in the U.S. This is encapsulated in the figure of the undocumented dreamer. Our student observes, quote, the university positions itself as an ally of the undocumented community but readily sells our stories to journalists in exchange for the press to construct UCM as a welcoming institution that does diversity work, unquote. Here she is referring to the New York Times article published in February 2017 about UC Merced's undocumented students, which deceptively under the guise of interviewing first-generation students in the Fiat Lux program, a a journalist uh, published the dorm room numbers and pictures of interviewed undocumented students both online and in a print copy of the newspaper, compromising the students' safety and security in the context of right-wing attacks and their fears of deportation by ICE in the Central Valley. Our undocumented students came to us during this difficult time to hear their concerns and understand their sense of mistrust of the university. Indeed, some faculty, including Professor Malloy and myself, met with the Vice Chancellor for Undergraduate Affairs to discuss how the university would address media requests and its protection of undocumented students' private information in the future. Our graduate students provide another example of the neoliberal university co-opting diversity and fashioning neoliberal solidarity projects for them. They borrow Raya el Zayn's term neoliberal orientalism, which describes the process by which Arab artists in the Middle East are co-opted by both progressive and conservative discourses to depoliticize Arab and Muslim anti-racist struggles and artistic expressions. Our students use this term, neoliberal orientalism, to describe the university's, quote, fascination with Muslim and perceivably Muslim individuals while simultaneously excluding people within those communities from academic spaces, unquote. One graduate Our graduate students are often embraced by the university's rhetoric of diversity and inclusion of Middle Eastern, South Asian, and Muslim students through their pictures on campus promotional materials and on the websites, yet they encounter marginalization in academic spaces by the lack of investment in coursework and intellectual events relevant to their lived realities in the U.S. and in transnational contexts.
3: Okay, so um, shifting to uh, providing examples of what we are calling non-aligned solidarities in formation. Again, we are also tying our shoes as we're running um, and thinking about how we can come together and imagine uh, a UC Merced that, for our students. Um, students, staff, and faculty of color regroup and revisit political questions as they seek to build alternative coalitional projects to address specific concerns about these communities or engage with allies on broader terrains of struggle. As examples, since our time at the university, a a number of new initiatives took place on campus to signal a politics of resilience, resistance, and solidarity among faculty and students of color. First, a group of diverse diverse, conscious faculty allies who who consolidated around the critical race and ethnic studies major initiative, which is now in its second year as a new major on our campus, uh, wrote to the local media and hosted a faculty teach-in after, Faisal, after um, a student, Faisal Mohammed attacked fellow students and was subsequently c- killed on campus by campus police in November 2015. In doing so, they carried the primary burden, labor burden of unpacking media representations for students, discussing Islamophobia in Merced, campus police violence, the need for community spaces on campus, mental health, masculinity, patriarchy, and cultural issues among immigrant students. This initiative largely involved faculty who came together to express solidarity around a politics of minoritized, racialized, and first-generation academic identity. Secondly, the Sikh Students Association and the Muslim Students Association formed new alignments in campus group identities based on their common experiences of Islamophobia at at UC Merced and in the Central Valley in relation to the 2016 elections. These new solidarities coalesce around MESA, a Middle Eastern and South Asian group identity based on racialized and religious identities. Together, these students engaged in campus canvassing, raising awareness about Islam and Sikhism, even in the context of severe risk of bodily and psychological harm in the context of a reactionary uritis and majority Republican town. Third, Uprise, the social justice coalition we had mentioned, laid bare structural claims at the 2020 groundbreaking ceremony. The collective disrupted the groundbreaking um, on October 14, 2016, with a list of demands explicitly speaking out against aggressively careless expansion, in their own words, um, at the expense of student health and wellness. Two of our current undergraduate students discussed their experiences expressing the demands that, and I quote, as queer women of color, the experiences we have encountered are of violence, trauma, and injustice that deliver ep- epistemic harm and disempower students. It is through coexisting with other students that we co-create and recognize our power as we interrogate the violence we experience in institutions of higher education, end quote. Our students recognize the epistemic injustices of the neoliberal university and its work to preserve power by withholding shared social spaces and access to resources to limit thought, conversations, and actions. But they assert a praxis of care that they explain us, uh, continued existence within the institution and contributing to systems of care that uplift us, uplift us when our university chooses not to. As our graduate students explained, spatial justice or claiming cultural and safe spaces became an important initial component of uprise among some students. These students challenged one of the university's key diversity claims, that our diverse student body should already make our campus a welcoming place. And they challenged this claim by demanding that the expanding campus make, spa- make room for such student p- spaces. As such, this discussion of relational politics has shown, our think uh, as our discussion of relational politics has shown, our thinking about both precarities and solidarities in the Neoliberal University is a dialogic and relationship-making endeavor with students. Indeed, engaged as we are in our various life and labor strategies, we are compelled by the possibility of a new kind of relationship to the UC, such that administrative elites are indebted to its diverse constituencies, both the students, communities, and the region. That provides the rationale and legitimacy of the success of the university. So we conclude this this talk by highlighting the value of students as producers of meaningful knowledge rather than consumers of Eurocentric knowledge. They feel and understand the risks of the university's diversity initiatives, even if they may not always have the academic language to express it. And this, for us, in terms of teachers at Yusmer said, also means that we shift pedagogical approaches, right? So um, to facilitate their learning and to build a critical vocabulary to empower our students' analysis of what they already know, rather than providing them with new information. As the students' excerpts show, they are already connecting their experiences at UCM to the broader national global context. They're also already producing knowledge that is not invested in reproducing the university's neoliberal logics. Thus, we ask, What does celebration look like in the context of the neoliberal university's co-opting of racialized students? For us, it is an opportunity to envision a decolonized university that challenges neoliberal governance, knowledge production that is valued in relation to its market profitability, and traditional program building. Celebration means tackling the critical questions of how does and how will the University of California reflect the needs of its students in their current historical, political, economic, and societal crossroads? How will they maintain their autonomy, claim space on campus, and contribute to the development of the fledgling university? As faculty, our celebration of the UC includes also asking another set of questions. What conditions are required to make accessible a form of critical higher education that centers the flourishing health and happiness of communities of color? Indeed, what are the ethical ways to develop a new research university for the historically oppressed under neoliberal conditionality? And what are ethical ways to inhabit the university at this critical juncture in US society? We suggest that dispositions of vulnerability and discomfort be placed center stage in our struggles to critically inhabit the UC and that we continually dwell on ethical problems in our classrooms meetings, and even our celebrations. So we close with the words of our students who led the Uprise Coalition, who demand to be seen, who advocate for an economy of care that is not extractive, and who imagine alternative ways of being. And they write, and I quote, we engage in producing the knowledge that the university continues to deny us through neoliberal tactics. This is fundamental in engaging with the healing process and authentically building community. At the crux of the demands is a request for dignity and respect at the institution that we haven't seen in years prior. We are here. We are watching. We understand. We won't be students for forever, but we will take this experience with us. We are uprising." Thank you very much.
2: I want to thank Robert uh, and Shane for including that presentation in the overall celebration. Um, As President Napolitano said, diversity is a faculty issue. You can do all of the legislation you want, you can do the support, but at the end of the day, diversity is a faculty issue. And when I was Provost and Eddie Island was beating on me all the time about lack of diversity, and I claim that diversification of the university faculty and students was glacial, turns out to be slower than uh, glaciers. The glaciers are melting faster almost than our diversity is changing. So this remains a really uh, serious problem and I'm delighted to have some interesting, informed voices, both to define the problem and to help us think about how we advance on this front. So it's a, it's a real live serious issue that the university has not solved. Um, income inequality is worsening. We hear that education is the best antidote, or at least one of the antidotes to that problem, and so UC has a, in my judgment, a serious requirement to address this problem seriously in the coming years. This is not an immediate fix, but it's something that somebody has to start and do more creditably than we have managed to do or that much of higher education has had to do. And numbers as provost, you can look at diversity the undergraduates, graduate students, postdocs, faculty, and it's just a seriously, Constraining pipeline, and it starts with our inability to bring to improve that pipeline. And until we do some serious work in that area, it's going to stay a bad problem. Our other three uh, panelists who are going to talk about UC's past uh, successes and future uh, challenges include uh, Yolanda Moses, who is a professor of anthropology at UC Riverside. Uh, who has for a long time done research uh, in um, uh, social inequality and complex societies, among other things. She's a past president of uh, the uh, City University of New York, specifically the City College. Uh, Michael Morans, who is a professor of history at UCLA and chair-elect of the UCLA uh, Academic Senate. Uh, For the past decade or so, Michael has been reviewing Uh, what he calls the vexed relationship between UC and its critics, about which all of you know something. Um, And then uh, Harry Pohl, uh, former chair of the Academic Senate recently, and UC San Diego professor of neuropathology. Um, I think we'll just start at the far end of the table. Uh, And uh, Harry, if you want to, you can either speak from here or there either way.
4: Thank you very much indeed. Um, I'm a superannuated optimist, um, and I am extremely grateful to the institution of shared governance. I think there's no better way for people to make friends and sustain friendships than through that, but also the extraordinary privilege of being connected to 10 universities while building a life and a career in one. During the time when um, I was up here in Oakland, um, I had an opportunity to visit every one of the campuses at least twice, as Dan has told us. And I'm extremely grateful to Dan because I remember when I put my foot in it very badly in Santa Barbara, uh, Dan came to the rescue. And uh, we ended up having a wonderful discussion with the faculty there and leaving with very positive feelings. I also particularly remember visits to Merced. Um, I had been very fascinated by the evolution of a new campus. Um, In San Diego, when I came in 1971, we still had our first class of medical students. And there's something distinctive about a first class. Uh, They have a sense that they're going to set the traditions for the institution. And that's how it was. In Merced, I felt the same thing. And when someone A young lady came up and she was wearing a veil and she said to me with great conviction, I am a bobcat. I knew right away that an evolving culture of loyalty to the institution uh, was something that was happening right in front of our eyes. That same year, uh, the students at Merced um, wrote a valentine to First Lady, then First Lady Michelle Obama, saying to her, We want you as our commencement speaker. Turns out Mrs. Obama did not give that many public speeches, um, but she did honor Merced, came out to the university, and I remember hearing one of the most powerful political speeches that I've ever heard or read, in which Michelle Obama talked about growing up in the environs of the University of Chicago, and in a community that was totally ignored by the University of Chicago. And um, it was a very powerful slam. And I wondered later, well, the Obama Library is probably going to end up in Chicago. So I hope that the other UC, University of Chicago, mends its ways in this particular... um... Now, when uh, I first came up uh, to... Oakland, I was very cognizant of the fact, foreign medical graduate. I didn't go to uh, four-year uh, college because that's not the way you learn medicine uh, in the British Isles. But um, I uh, did have um, an opportunity in this new university to read about the history of the University of California. And that's why uh, John Douglas's book... Um, The California Idea, uh, which explores the origins of uh, education here in California right up to the time of the master plan. It's a wonderful companion. And every night before I fell asleep, I read either that book or another book, William Warren Ferrier's book on the origins and development of the University of California, 1860 to 1930, a fabulous book. In that book, you begin to become aware that one of the great sustaining forces in the University of California is the shared sense of the importance of quality. And so it all starts with an American missionary group, the American Missionary Home Society, that uh, sent a young man, Samuel Hopkins Willie who was facing a comfortable life on the East Coast as a pastor in a little church uh, somewhere near Yale. Instead, this young man in 1849 was sent out to California to start higher education in the state of California. Uh, he went on a steamboat uh, down to New York, and then another steamboat took him to New Orleans. And as he was getting on his ship in New Orleans suddenly all these very rough-looking characters came, some of them carrying pickaxes and hoes and various other things. Word had just come out that gold had been discovered in uh, Sutter's Creek, and people from all over the continent were now going to converge on California. Into that environment of great turmoil, Samuel Hopkins Willies made his way uh, he had to cross the land uh, mass of Central America and then take another steamboat up to Monterey, which was a sort of functional capital of the uh, of California of those days. When he got out of the ship and started talking to people about his vision for education, nobody wanted to listen to him. It was a time when doctors were leaving their patients uh, school teachers were abandoning their schools everybody was caught up in the fever of the gold rush. He went back to the cabin on his ship, and he was in a state of despair. And then he thought, well, you know, I don't have a choice in this. Uh, I've been sent by divine providence. I'm here. And so he um, persisted. And out of that came the College of California, particularly with great visionaries like Henry Durant. But the College of California provided many, many crucial things. One was, it was a liberal arts college that had succeeded. It effectively donated itself to Berkeley. And in donating itself to Berkeley, they accomplished a very difficult political task. The temper of the times in California in 1868 was just as difficult as it is in our time. And there was a great deal of contention. And so... um, The demand for a university centered on agriculture and the mechanical arts. But Berkeley's, at least the gift of uh, the College of California, now made it possible for liberal arts to be part of the overall educational plan of the University of California. Another very remarkable thing that happened at that time was uh, farmers were criticizing uh, the university very uh, strongly. And so a distinguished professor, Hilgard, was sent to meet with a group of farmers. And so he sat in a room and heard a great deal of anger, and eventually he got up and uh, he spoke to them. And he said, I was a farmer in Michigan, and then I went to the university. And as a farmer, I was interested in rocks and soil, and plants and seeds. Here in California, we have completely new soil, different rocks. We don't know what plants are going to succeed, but at the University of California, that's what we're going to do. We're not going to teach your children how to fork manure. We're going to teach your children to apply science to the resolution of California's set of problems. It was a wonderful start. So in 18... Uh, um, a group of the trustees of the new university walked up to the hilltop looking down over Berkeley, saw the golden gate in a magnificent sunset, and looked at each other, and one of them began to recite from a poem that was called The Practical... um, The Prospect of Planting Arts and Learning in America, a poem written by an Irish philosopher, George Berkeley. Westward, the course of empire takes its way. The first four acts already passed. A fifth shall close the drama with the day. Time's noblest offspring is the last. Berkeley saw time's noblest offspring as being the future North America, the future United States. That was his vision. He had been given a promise of twenty thousand uh, pounds to create a new university. He went to uh, the East Coast, became friendly with people in uh, Columbia College and in uh, which was then called King's College, and then also in Yale and Harvard, endowed them with many of his books. But he failed in his most important project, which was to found a university because the money that was promised never came through. But when he went back uh, to Ireland, he became first a dean and then a bishop, which was a very fine job at that time. And so he has left his name uh, to this university because of a trustee who remembered that poem and recited it. And so the oddity is that most of our universities of California are named after Spanish saints. Um, Two are named after ranches. Uh, but one is named after uh, an academic. Um, One of the things that made quality so important in the 19th century was uh, the um, reflections of Alexis de Tocqueville, who was struck by the fact, he was a French aristocrat, Um, lived in a castle and so forth. So he comes to America and he was struck by the fact that people were so interested in education. And de Tocqueville began to realize, and he put it this way, he said, there is in each person an innate splendor. And that is the thing that education must bring out. Pretty soon, Emerson was echoing the same tune and saying, education... uh, the coming glory of democracy would be sustained by education. So at the, at the time of the founding of the university, there was a tremendous expectation. Interestingly, the 150,000 acres of land given to the university, that was given without any revenue from the state to the early days. So in the first 20 years of the University of California they didn't have a penny from the state. They were told to sell their land but of course once they did or attempted to do that the real estate industry pounced and um, their land was almost worthless. So I thought about all these things when in 2009 2010 I remember hearing when I first came to OP that the state was in such a mess in terms of its budget that the university actually was borrowing 300 million dollars which it would then give to the state and then the state would give back to the university to meet payroll. That's how bad things were in in that time. Well, we got through that time and I kept thinking, um, how did the University of California handle other crises in the past And, of course, there was an extraordinary number of crises. Um, When we look back at the history of California, it seems that things, particularly in the early decades, were extraordinarily difficult. And yet, people did amazing things. We saw pictures of President uh, Wheeler riding a horse across the Berkeley campus. Um, Patricia Pelfrey, who was here earlier this afternoon, has a story in her book, The Brief History of the University of California, about how when he was riding his horse across the campus, um, faculty were quite nervous, but he was a great uh, fan of students, and he was always very kind to students. So there's a story that she tells that a student at Berkeley in uh, 1920 um, had just joined the university and was feeling very miserable because... This was such a science and math institution, and he liked literature and didn't feel very comfortable. As he was walking through the campus, feeling pretty sad, a man approached on horseback. And as the man drew closer, he took off his hat and bowed to the student. Well, of course, the student's day was made. He suddenly realized he'd been recognized by the most important, the big man on the campus riding a horse. That student was Irving Stone. Uh, he enriched many of our lives, although uh, you don't see his stuff around quite as much, but he enriched many of our, lives, of our lives with the extraordinary books. that he. But it was in Wheeler's time, Wheeler had to deal with the fact that for the first 20 years, um, there was no revenue. Then in 1887, an act was passed which gave the University of California 1% of every $100 in property tax. That sustained the university for quite a while, but then a populist spirit in the early 1900s and antagonism towards the railroads resulted in an initiative which redirected all the property tax to the localities around California. So suddenly the university was again high and dry. At that time, fortunately, Hiram Johnson, the progressive governor, sat down with the university president, and they worked out per capita enrollment where the state would fund student enrollment on a per capita basis. And that's when the university saw an extraordinary explosion in growth, uh, which we heard about last night. Now, um, then, just when things are going very well, along comes the Depression. The amazing thing about the University of California is that during the Depression, nobody got laid off. No, no faculty, no staff, nobody was taken. Uh, nobody lost their job in the depression. But everybody got a 12% cut. And uh, the university also decided to greatly increase its enrollment and that helped to meet um, some of the immense social need that was associated with it. So um, that generosity of spirit has been a huge factor I think, uh, in the evolution of of this university. And um, I I like to think in terms of anecdotes which show a particular attitude um, uh, that of compassion or caring or decency. Uh, One uh, story uh, that involves someone who I knew, a man called Harvey Tano, he was a a professor of uh, chemistry at UCSD. He had um, been a student at Berkeley when um, because of his Japanese ancestry, he was taken away and interned. But his exam results and his performance had resulted in he was nominated for the Berkeley Gold Medal. And so he'd won the medal, but he was interned in a camp. And um, so Robert Gordon Sproul the president of the university, went out to that camp and personally delivered the gold medal to Harvey Atano. Harvey Atano then, after, all the, after the war was over, Harvey Atano went on to become one of the postdocs working with Linus Pauling and uh, they unraveled the molecular structure of hemoglobin. Uh, but I think that um, one of the things that is so important to the faculty, and that is quality. And I think in quality, in ensuring quality, it's the faculty expectation of excellence, but also philanthropy has a big part to play. And philanthropy is one way in which the university is affirmed by people outside the university. It can never meet the needs of the students in terms of their tuition and education, but what it can do is show a commitment to the University of California, which is in line with its historic development. And I think one of the proudest things is to see that the University of California, one, of one, two, or three of our campuses, makes it into the top of the social impact factor um, published by the Washington Monthly every year. There's always, it's either Berkeley or LA or San Diego, um, someone is right up there at the top and that means we are doing something that's different from other universities. We're doing it as a public university and it's playing a positive social difference. Thank you very much. Uh,
0: Yolanda. Oh, me? Yeah. Okay. thank you. Hello everybody. I'm very happy to uh, be on this panel and I too would like to say that I had an opportunity to um, go to the UC Merced campus in the role of a reviewer for the Department of Anthropology as an anthropologist myself. And it was really heartening to see the kinds of initiatives that were um, going on in light of the dearth of resources that the institution had to do its work. There was a, a vitality there that uh, was infect- infectious in terms, of, um, in terms of our visit. So I'm happy that you invited me because I think it's really important to take opportunities to stop, look back, interrogate the past, but to be very intentional about how we want to move forward and in being the kind of um, institution that we can be, in this case, the Academic Senate. Um, truth in Advertising, I am a product of this three-tiered system of higher education. I am um, a graduate of um, UC Riverside in the Department of Anthropology, And I had the opportunity to live in New York and to be a part of the city university system, which is based on a version of the three-tiered system of higher education we have here in California. That is, within that 22-campus system, there are community colleges, four-year institutions, and they have a centralized uh, graduate division or graduate program, which is a modified version of what we have here because it was a system they thought would work. I also had the opportunity to be present at that institution at its sesquicentennial celebration. CCNY started in 1849 as the a free academy, which was started by the Board of Education of New York City to educate the children of immigrants in that city. And it, too, was free. And it, too, started a, um, a revolution in the sense that the Board of Education recognized that uh, Columbia University and what came to be NYU could not be the only two institutions in that city if, in fact, the millions of uh, people there were going to make New York the best city it could be in the world. So the idea of a free education, uh, if you think about it, is something that we started out with here, too, in California, that notion that for all who come... uh, would have access uh, to higher education. So I think it's important as we look back, um, as our speaker has done, that we're intentional about what it is we want to be as a system as we use move forward. And I think situating a campus like UC Merced as one of the examples of what a 21st century UC research university looks like, gives us a lot of food for thought. And what I want to do is to look at three areas quickly so that I can give my thoughts in terms of trying to understand where we are going. Several people have said that it is important as, as we move forward to involve the faculty centrally in the work of transformational change here in the 21st century. Uh, So we have to look at the faculty, who the faculty are, um, and it's very clear that we have not achieved the diversity we want. And so the question I put on the table is why not? And what are we really going to do about it? Um, where are the places where we can do that work, where we can do that heavy lifting, so that we're not drip, 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 adding one faculty member at a time, one faculty member at a time. We've begun to collect data here in the university that helps us understand that one size does not fit all policies. I mean, this is a place for us to start and we've started to understand where some of those gaps are in terms of where we, are, where we need to put our resources and where we need to put our thinking as we, um, as we move forward. For example, the most recent UC Accountability Report notes that we've done a lot better o- over the past decade with women. Uh, 33.6% of faculty are women. And the overall underrepresented number of faculty in the UC uh, is still at 10%, 10 10.1%. And if we disaggregate that number, the underrepresented group by female faculty is 4.3%. And you all know what our student body looks like. And you all know that we're a university that has been given has been given um, the privilege by the state of California their trust for us to educate, to create new knowledge for the people of California. So the idea that we're still struggling with this issue means that uh, we're not doing something right. And I believe in reinforcing what um, uh, Larry said here, that it is up to us to do something about it. There was some, uh, I think it was a vice chair who asked, what are some of the concrete things we can do? Well, we talked about periodically in one of the early presentations that there were uh, convenings of faculty every year around different themes. It seems to me one of the things that we've done here and I can rattle off eight or ten of them, themes that we have surfaced here today that really need to be on the agenda for those conferences. I think it's uh, one tradition maybe to revise those conferences and to make them all university conferences so that we can delve more deeply into these issues where we're just raising... um, we're raising some of the the issues that should be looked at. We've done some things here, and I think probably one of the most, um, how should I say it, one of the most productive over the past 14 years has been the President's postdoc program. That program, if it's successful, we need to think about how to put that on steroids so that um, it can be uh, duplicated in ways that we perhaps haven't even thought about before. Another uh, example nationally that has been successful is the idea of cluster hires if they're done right. (laughs) Need I say more, Dylan? Because they can be very effective, but they have to involve faculty at all levels. And this is where sometimes the administration gets ahead of the faculty processes that they say we're all working together on. Um, And that collaboration is really important. If we're talking about bringing in key key eminent people, for example, I'm just giving you three examples. Key uh, key eminent people from universities um, where they maybe not necessarily want to leave or come, to have uh, partnerships the way we do with universities across internationally. We can have them with historically black colleges, tribal colleges, places where we know these uh, professors are who would come and spend some time with us thinking through how to um, help us uh, uh, with our, our faculty hiring processes as well as to work more effectively with our students as, been, as has been talked about. So we need regular faculty convenings to do this. Um, If we were to wave a magic wand and we were able to have faculty diversity, my question would be faculty diversity in service to what? And to whom? And that would be another kind of uh, convening where we (coughs) would take the task of understanding What does a 21st century land grant university look like where faculty are creating new knowledge, educating their students, creating new pedagogies, thinking about the future of a pluralistic democracy in action, what does that look like? And how can the faculty senate be movers of that kind of initiative because nobody else can do it and nobody else is doing it. The second point I wanna make is that we have, uh, we spend a lot of time as uh, academics um, collecting information uh, and sometimes we don't stop to assess what we're doing with our missions of teaching, research, and service, and to understand that we're in an environment that's constantly moving and constantly changing. And so when we go back and look at our reports, and I know just on our own campus, we have task forces, we have uh, reports that we've done on on uh, various innovations and on on diversity, on change, all kinds of things, and many of them sit on shelves and collect dust. I think at our 150th anniversary, one of the things we ought to do is to go back and look at some of those reports that have been seminal or we thought would be seminal and to say which of those recommendations have been implemented and which have not been implemented, and why not? For example, uh, what is happening across campuses with the implementation and the effectiveness of our having implemented APM 210 in our campuses? And what can, to what extent can we glean the best practices from campuses who are doing a good job in their initiatives um, and then to what extent can faculty be rewarded for that kind of work? Um, the, the work of change is not just the work of uh, newly minted PhDs who come in and have a different view of the institution than uh, some of us who've been around for a long time. There are responsibilities, and I think um, Amy spoke to this earlier, there are... Uh, responsibilities, almost covenants, if you will, between the faculty and administrators where change can happen without outside uh, okay, without uh, outside interference. And again, that happens when there are resources, uh, including time, doesn't always have to be money, that are set aside to create spaces to do that kind of work. Uh, So that the reports we design going forward are asking the right questions based on inputs from people whose voices have not been heard before. And it seems to me that's something that the Senate can do with, to create those spaces to bring people together. For example, uh, it was almost 10 years ago, uh, five Southern California campuses received an NSF grant to link administrators' decisions with faculty values around implementing the hiring and the training of um, people, to go, uh, women specifically, to go into the STEM fields. And that was a decade ago. We developed a lot of good materials for deans and provosts and all across the five campuses, and we promised that we would continue to look at this information you know, every year. But as soon as the grant went away, the um, convenings stopped. So what questions do we need to ask about ourselves to understand how committed we are to transformational change? And that's different than incremental change and tinkering around the edges, which I have no problem with if it's leading toward something else. Because otherwise, we will be where we are today, 10 years from now, talking about this same issue. So not only do we want to point out what is wrong, but how do we move from here to there and to have some concrete goals on how to do that? How do we create these new models that will help us to hear new voices, for example, how do we listen to students who's bringing with them their own experiences from their communities? They may have nothing to do with the experiences that any of us in this room have ever had, and our job is to educate or to co-educate or to learn with them and from them. And that's a new way of doing business in the university. The third point that I want to, do, to focus on is how do we as a system, and I mean faculty within this system, which by definition is a huge clunky thing, as I call it, become more flexible to mobilize around local state, national, international research and policy issues. Yes, we're the premier research universities, but how fast do we move? How quickly can we pull people together and teams together, SWAT teams, if you will, in a good way, to do this kind of work on behalf of our university and on behalf of our community? How do we bring the power of TIN to bear on critical issues intractable and stubborn social cultural economic health related environmental and ultimately highly politically charged problems I see this happening at two levels first of all pooling our research and policy expertise from a a faculty perspective will allow us to um, understand what we as individual faculty can bring to the table to solve problems and maybe think critically about what it does mean to do interdisciplinary research. You know, we talk a lot about it, but how, uh, how often do we actually structure our ways of interacting to create new knowledge to do that. And the second um, level, as I see it, is to be intentional about doing this cross-sectional kind of work. That is for our universities or, or for, our, for the faculty within the universities to structure uh, research teams and research opportunities that are intentional about bringing expertise across a, a variety or array of disciplines to solve Problems, so that we're talking about uh, foregrounding new epistemes, new, way new ways of knowing and thinking about issues, uh, critical, uh, bringing critical theory to practice, pra- understanding uh, praxis, uh, understanding uh, standpoint, understanding new ways of knowing that are about empowering a faculty. To help the university, the other stools of that shared governance, understand what to do. Because a lot of times the Board of Regents and the structure of the University of California, a lot of the administrators don't have the answers and don't know what to do. For example, just like with the with the creation of Boers Committee in the Crucible of an outside threat to the values of most, if not all, faculties, because there everybody wasn't on board at that time, were in agreement that diversity and equality were not two separate entities, but go hand in hand. So that even with the passage of SB 1 and 2 and the passage of Prop 209, the law of oh, Prop 209, okay, passage of Prop 209, the university was able to stand pat with its um, values. And so I think with the outside threat that we're facing now, 150 years, not from a, a particular individual or a particular group, but from our government itself, the offices of justice, the offices of the Department of Education, the offices that we are in for a, a long Ride that's going to threaten what we stand for. So, the idea of access to higher education is a value that I hope we will continue to support, even if it looks different at this point in time. Thank you.
5: Um, I also wanted to thank Anith and Ma for um, their presentation, both along the lines of um, what Larry and Yolanda mentioned about uh, highlighting the issues of diversity, but also just because it's such a wonderful example of um, faculty actually reflecting on uh, the university in which they operate. And um, we don't do enough of that, it seems to me, uh, in general. And um, I probably am the only person on the panel that hasn't been to Merced, so I'm expecting an invitation soon. that's <laughs> um, so. your task. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, one of the disadvantages of being the last person is that I'm gonna repeat uh, things that other people have said um, the advantage of being the last person is that um, then I get to leave, and you don't get to yell at me for being repetitive. Um, but what I want to do is um, talk about one uh, particular aspect of uh, that, that concerns the governance of the university for the future. Uh, it's clear, and and people have have spoken about this for the last. Uh, two days that there are a lot of what we might think of as contextual challenges that are facing the university as a whole, the drastically reduced state funding, although obviously um, in recent years there's been some slight increase, Um, the dramatic expansion in the sheer numbers of eligible students, uh, which we don't actually have the physical plan to deal with effectively along with the Um, growing complexity of that student population and the need to think clearly about um, how to teach in different ways and the widespread attacks on public higher education, higher education in general, but public higher education in particular um, that have intensified over the last two or three years. But what I want to do is um, focus on, I put it away on purpose. Oh, that's good. I'd rather that. No? Okay. Um, you sure? I can't get away with that. okay. Okay. Um, what I want to do, though, is focus on one very particular internal problem, or what I think of as an internal problem, which is what I view to have been a um, tremendously mistaken response on the part of the university to how they have responded to the, to how it has responded to um that challenge or those challenges, and what seems to me to be the um, damaged state of the governance of the university as a result. And so my um, simple idea that I'd like to get um, across is that the model of UC governance that we've been using for the last 10 to 15 years has failed, um, that it was a mistake, and that if it is not um, drastically reformed and rethought, then we're just not going to meet um, the future demands. And the simple version of um, this this managerial or um, governing form that uh, I want to emphasize is that the university, it seems to me, has responded to these challenges um, by an expansion of what is thought of as managerial flexibility. Um, It's an overemphasis on commercialization, on responses to the immediate demands of the market, Uh, It's a reduction in an open deliberative debate and the time spent on open deliberative debate about the future of the university. It's often um, justified in terms of the need to be nimble, which I think should be added to um, Anit's vacuous list of terms (laughs) like entrepreneurial and innovative because it means absolutely nothing um, and uh, overlooks the fact that if you nimbly come up with a bad idea, you have still come up with a bad idea. Um, now, there are a lot of different aspects to this, but I just want to um, focus on um, one part, which it seems to me is the, for all of our <clears throat> shared um, payons to uh, quality and scholarship and research, what seems to me to have been um, a long-term denigration of academic authority within the university Um, and concomitantly with the um, lessening of the authority of the Academic Senate. Um, I think that this is a result of uh, decisions and choices made both by administration and by the Senate, Um, and I'll talk about both of them in turn. Um, But there are a few um, more administratively centered examples that um, I'm just gonna offer. I mean, there are many, many others um, first, um, people mention the, uh, unused task force reports, but I think the whole issue of task forces is itself something that needs to be rethought. The proliferation of administratively run tra- task forces that choose selective faculty preferred by the administrators, um, as an imitation of shared governance has spread, um, maybe not so much on system wide. I don't know. You guys could tell me better, but certainly on campuses, um, you know, there's, you You get a list of acceptable faculty members, the Senate responds with a list, and then they choose the list of acceptable faculty members. Um, And then they say, well, we put faculty members on our task force, therefore, they're shared governance. It's not quite the same thing. The growing numbers of so called tiger teams at OP and at campuses, which, um, you know, let's face it, uh, you know, okay, it might lead to some form of crunchy cereal. But it really is not um, the sort of governance structure that a university wants. Uh, The recent creation of a university center that might have been discussed at the previous panel um, without following the actual requirements of the UC compendium um, that was created without full academic senate participation um, was established, now gives grants, um, has a governing board, um, and is allegedly the centerpiece of UC's contribution to debates about free expression again produced in a completely inappropriate fashion procedurally and it was without consult- consultation now in certain ways um, the Commission on the future I think was the poster child for this change um, it w- might have been an opportunity for the Senate to sit down and seriously think about um, the future of the university, um, instead, for a variety of, of reasons and choices that were made made by both Senate and administrative leaders, it was handed over. Um, it was administratively run. Um, it was handed off to a regent. Um, and uh, let's leaving aside the um, incredible administrative efficiencies and savings that have resulted from UC Path. Um, <laughs> We, can, we only need to um, remember in thinking about um, the Commission on the Future um, the mind-bogglingly bad predictions that accompanied the beginnings of UCL Online. Um, you know, Chancellor um, Blumenthal mentioned that there were many people who were entranced with MOOCs. Um, at UC, as I recall, there were one or two people located slightly north to us um, who were um, entranced with MOOCs. Um, they were able to get the attention of the president and the regents. Um, almost all the faculty members who actually had worked with online education told them that they were wrong. They were treated with contempt, um, the faculty members. And um, so we now have a mythology about online education, which is continued in the fantasy life of the governor, um, and which we continue to pay for it because um, there was a level of uh, managerial, uh, if I, you know, we, uh, managerial supremacy and refusal to engage with the people that were actually on the ground doing the work. Now, it's unquestionable that all of these developments have created a good deal of work, a good deal of paper, that they've cost a lot of money. Um, but I think they've diverted our thoughts from our core tasks and with maybe a few exceptions, um, done little, if anything, to improve either education or research. Right? I mean, I, I really just don't see the benefit. And then if you throw in the financial side, which is that with all of these, I'm sorry, the provost isn't here, so he, he can tell me I'm wrong. But um, with all of the um, alternative revenue stream, streams and the multiplicity of SSDPs and um, the huge philanthropical campaigns, Uh, The last slide I saw suggested that in terms of core funds, we have about 30% per student of what we had in 2001, um, despite all of the uh, rises in tuition. Now, obviously, that's because of state cuts, but the point is that once we conceded that fact and went in this other direction, we had lost the game. And until we figure out a way to not think that way, we are going to lose the game. It's just not going to work. Now, um, this is where I get a little repetitive. Um, In thinking about how we might move beyond that, uh, it is, I think, important to recognize or to remember two uh, points in UC history that were mentioned by John Douglas and George Blumenthal and um, probably six or seven other people. Um, The first is that in the Organic Act, Um, that created the university. The Academic Senate was, and here I'm quoting, uh, created, uh, or at least in part, created for the purpose of, as they put it, conducting the general administration of the university and memorializing the Board of Regents. Now, I, I read this as saying a couple of things. One, you know, the Senate is there for governance and administration. The other is just to note that although Our powers are delegated by the regions. The Senate was created at the same time as the regions, and therefore, um, I think we need to take that seriously. Right? The uh, autonomy may make a great university. The board of regions doesn't, especially this board of regions. Okay. Um, And um, and I think the Senate needs to remember that. The second point. that we're making and this is something that John also mentioned was that in the and I, and I think um, Robert mentioned it as well you know one of the crucial aspects of the Berkeley Revolution amongst others was the authority to organize its own committees now the Senate still has that authority but when governance is done by task forces and tiger teams um, that authority becomes much less meaningful and it's a way of avoiding that authority when you establish task forces and tiger teams, so it seems to me on the administrative end, and again, I guess you're as close as we come to an administrator actually still in the room, and you're not even an administrator anymore and you. Um, so this is probably yeah, but I have a lot of experience. you do, but I'm just saying I can't get you to do these things because you're not an administrator anymore. Um, um, you know the the first thing. Yeah, the first thing that, you know, you all should be saying to your administrators is that they need to stop seeking shortcuts and end runs around the necessary deliberative process with the Senate. Um, I understand that can be frustrating. I mean, after all, if you have just invented the wheel, um, you may not want somebody pointing out that it has been done before and it's not exactly going to fill in that square position. But um, it is actually necessary to have that sort of debate and discussion. As I say, if you rush into a bad decision, it doesn't alter the fact that it's a bad decision. The other thing, and this echoes something that Amy Dorr said yesterday, is there really needs to be increased funding, not just for the Senate staff, but um, I actually think for Senate participation or or some sort of systematic um, uh, uh, recompense. I mean... Maybe this is just my campus, Shane may agree or disagree with me, but I am always amazed at the amount of change that, and I mean by not in the way that Yolanda means it, but I'm talking about what's in your wallet. The amount of change that is available um, to faculty members who are willing to serve on some dean's subcommittee or as a dean's advisory board and then gets an extra grant of money or course relief as opposed to senate service, which is basically voluntary work. right? And um, you know, you sit on something like CPB on any campus. It's a lot of work. And yet the expectation is that you're just going to do it out of the goodness of your heart. And it's just not going to work that way. It doesn't work that way well. And um, it's sort of sending a message that the university considers this voluntary work. Um, and uh, that has to change, it seems to me. But I think if the administration does bear responsibility for this, so does the Senate. Um, and partly, and this again is, is just echoing things that other people have said, um, we need as a body to regain our focus and capacity to formulate a longer term educational vision. You know, The Senate um, is largely reaction You know, it's reactive, and I I understand this. Um, You know, you're responding to a lot of different things. It's hard to get the time to think long-term. You know, I was joking with – this may not be a good joke given what's happened today, but I was joking with a friend that, you know, the experience is sort of like on Monday. They show up, and, you know, if you're in the Senate, and they go, if we give you a gun, will you shoot yourself? And you go, no, I don't think so. And then on Tuesday, they show up and go, well, if it's a knife, would you consider stabbing yourself? And you go, no, my principle is still not to kill myself. And then on Wednesday, they go, well, I had an idea. Maybe you'll drown yourself. And then you're constantly fending off these administrative initiatives um, to give up your authority. But it's still important to um, that we regain our ability to think more um, forward-looking. Um, two things that I would suggest. The first, and and This has struck me um, on my own campus, but I think insofar as I've had a lot of interaction with system-wide people and with people on other campuses, I think it's generally true. Um, We tend to allow our thinking about Senate authority and um, uh, the creation of policy and positions in much too much of a siloed fashion. Uh, and what doesn't really get thought of enough is the way in which different um, Senate committees or different Senate authorities or different Senate concerns are actually intertwined. Um, They need to be built on in in communication with each other and that they need to be based on some fundamental principles. So one um, obvious principle, despite its... um, complex history, I would argue, is the maintenance of academic freedom, which I would argue is different from free speech, um, and is um, the maintenance of a professional authority over um, curriculum and research, and therefore is about uh, the maintenance of professional academic judgment um, and the ability within different spheres. I mean, different people will have different judgments um, to do that. Uh, reaffirmation of the authority over curriculum and over defining fields of study and their development. There was one slide about um, uh, donor-driven activity in somebody's talk. Um, You know, I'm constantly having conversations with deans who, you know, have gotten some donor who wants to donate a a chair in a field and they'll go, well, it's money, and I'm going to save the money because they're doing it. And my response is, well, you're only saving money if it was something that you were planning on doing in the first place. Because otherwise, you still got the same costs, plus you got the additional costs of this particular initiative. And um, it just isn't the way to run an airline. Um, and finally, a sort of a recognition that the central authorities of the Senate, power over curriculum and degrees, essential role in personnel decisions rights of academic freedom have to be understood as a as a conjuries of intertwined rights and powers and that however much we work with administration and I agree with that um, does stand in distinction from the administration and from the claims of the administration um, and needs to be defended as such the second point and I'm probably running out of time which has been mentioned on several occasions um, is that we need to reestablish ourselves as a body of collective inquiry. People have talked about the um, all faculty conferences. They started in the 40s. They lasted till the 70s. I don't know why they died. Um, Something along those lines needs to be reestablished. It will take funding, Um, uh, which again, if the provost was here, I would ask him to do. But it's important that 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 sort of thing, it can't be the exact same type of endeavor because the faculty was smaller, um, the the problems were less, but if it isn't recreated that way so that the Senate begins to think of itself as a deliberative, forward-looking policy body again, then it doesn't really deserve the authorities that it has. And the bottom line, and this is, you know, this is preaching to the converted, um, is necessary because if you don't have the centrality of academic judgment over financial or managerial judgment, a university is simply not a university, right? It may be a business, it may be something else. Not that I think we should be imitating businesses given the tremendous destruction of American society, if the business models of financialization have caused. I mean, it's not like why we're like looking out to business for models to how to run a society sort of escapes me as a historian of a longer term. But even leaving that aside, if, if the thing is not centered on academic judgment, then it's not a university. It's something else. And again, we might as well, you know, pull up, take our, you know, our toys home and stop pretending.
2: we have pretty close to used up our time, uh, and people may have airplanes and so forth. I think um, we can choose to take four or five minutes for some questions. I think there has been a ton of stuff put on the table. I'm not sure how we pick and choose among them, but Shane has his hand up, so Professor White.
6: Two things. One is the engagement in shared governance, and as a faculty, it's our responsibility to do that. Uh, you also mentioned the proliferation of tiger teams. Uh, my brand new dean has created a shadow curriculum committee. Um, so you know. Yeah, we should talk about your dean. Well, that, that's, another, that's another topic. But shared governance. Unless we engage it, unless we look to the future. It doesn't mean anything, so thank you for making that point.
5: Can I add to you about that, because I forgot to say this, that I think the Senate has to do a much better job than it does
6: of convincing faculty as a whole that participating in this matters. You made that point that faculty are, pay a loyalty penalty for participation and giving... <laughs> Um, you made the point about core funds per student dropping by 31% since the year 2000. And that's partly because of real dollars not being provided by the state. Uh, But it's also uh, due to unfunded mandates to increase enrollment or half-funded mandates to increase enrollment capital funding That is another enormous problem. The state has not been contributing to capital projects uh, for more than a decade. Um, I wanted to turn towards former Chair Doerr, if I may. The visioning of UC for 2040, that was an attempt uh, allegedly prompted by the Council of Chancellors to look way into the future. my understanding then, Provost Storm facilitated that discussion, uh, but the chancellors didn't like what they were seeing, and uh, uh, maybe ended the conversation. But I, I, she may correct me on the history of this. But that exercise did find two really important things. One was the current, the current fiscal liabilities are enormous. Uh, we're worried about building for the future and the cost of that. It's the debt that we've already accumulated is crushing. Uh, the second, it was quite interesting to me that the campus's aspirations for growth did not match. They were way below what we would need to do to fulfill our obligations uh, under the master plan. Um, so this is you know, both addressed to, to you and to former Provost Doar uh, to make sure I've got my history and my observation's right. Well, I'll just come right over
7: there. <laughs> <laughs> some some people who uh, know me know that I was a AYSO referee, and I have a very loud voice when I need to, uh, but an, um, a um, microphone is better. So it, that's generally true. It was a this was an exercise that um, that chancellors wanted to do, which was to look at. Um, Various growth models and what the obligations might be if we took the eligibility uh, standards and the population growths both into account, and the fact that more high school students were being prepared. All right, and and it included looking at what were the current obligations, what did they think they wanted, and um, how did those things match up into a future that was far enough away that you wouldn't be doing um, uh, uh, direct planning right at the time. And what happened after it all got put together, we had one meeting, I think, maybe two. It had um, faculty representation and administrative representation. And then we took it all back, and we were going to finish it. And then we got I got uh, letters from my friends from UCLA, in fact, with, stop now and um and, and my view is that what happened was that the uh likely numbers that we would give for capital for new stuff in order to handle the student growth and all of the repairs and fixes and all was huge, huge, and it was while it was meant to be internal, it was also the case that it could look like it was um actually growth planning, which many of the campuses didn't want to cope with or had to cope with and wanted to do specifically. So it all got stopped. I did insist, and staff worked with me, and we wrote the whole thing up. We consolidated all all the things we had. And then what I've been interested in myself is that some of that has reappeared in at regents meetings like the uh, capital needs in the future, but it's, it's not all packaged up into the future. And um, there were, there actually was enough interest expressed by a variety of the chancellors that we could have met the estimates for the future. That wasn't what stopped it at all. It was all these more political worries. But we did package it, and I have seen that it got used. Several parts of it in pieces.
2: Um, it's, Thank you for it's asking. Five, for it. five minutes after five, I'm gonna. So we're gonna have to wrap up, and people can come and address some of the speakers. I want to take the chair's prerogative to make one or two very brief points. Um, I will leave to the Senate leaders now and coming on to work out the precise interaction with administration on how that part of shared governance goes. I think it will always be an evolution. There will be strong views on both sides, and I will leave that to the appropriate parties to sort out. But I want to make the point that there are a few key issues that are in the hands of the Senate. I mentioned diversity as a while ago. That's the Senate dictates who the faculty are and the pathways, so that's an issue. The PPIC estimates down the pathway that was looked at are frightening. The University of California has to have a role in whatever the solution of that is. The Senate is responsible for granting those degrees, What degrees, how many, what does does the university look like? Is it a fixed number of student model like Harvard or Yale where you don't grow the population? That's probably not an acceptable political answer. But exactly how many more students will the university be responsible for? How do they plan to educate them? The capital issues are there. Uh, at least when I was provost, there was a suggestion that if we used online education to a greater degree for resident students that some of the capital d- demands would diminish. There are a lot of issues here. If you have that many more students, what does our faculty look like? That is directly in the control of the Senate. So, I th- and 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 it's at least intersegmental, however much value there is with ICAS or other groups remains to be seen. These are in the hands of the Senate, and I think that the challenges are enormous. The mark on history that the Senate can bring to the table now is huge. Uh, It's for the good of California. It's for the good of the university. It's good for the the good of students, for the good of faculty that we've never met but we want. Um, Senate has a lot of work that doesn't require somebody else to initiate. You have to gather data. You need friends for that. You need to work out paths forward. But the way the faculty looks, how many students you educate and give degrees to, that is Senate business. And so I think the 150th anniversary is kind of a springboard to the next 50 or 100 years or the whatever the double sesquicentennial looks like. Um, And so I wish the Senate well in these weighty deliberations, but the good of the state and the country will turn on your decisions. And I, you know, wish us all well in those endeavors. So with that, I think we will conclude the terrific birthday celebration for 150 years and thank the senate for putting this together and hope that you carry away some useful messages from this and we wish you well in these endeavors thank you
0: you've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television for more information about this program or UCTV visit us online at uctv.tv